Hello, I'm Graham Wood. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, where today I will be celebrating with host Stephen Brittingham the 20th anniversary of The Patriot. I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me. And the cost is more than I can bear. Welcome to the 20th anniversary of The Patriot, here on Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Brittingham. It is so nice to have all of you listening. Thank you very much. My special guest is Graham Wood, who joins me today to discuss his impressive career as a producer, writer, and most certainly as an actor. He is a graduate of the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and is a voting member of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, not to mention being a member of the Writers Guild of Canada. An actor can leave behind unforgettable moments from a film that stay with viewers long, long after a film first arrives to the cinema, leaving a footprint in our hearts and minds, so to speak. My guest proves this to be true. As the sympathetic Redcoat Lieutenant in Roland Emmerich's deeply moving 2000 film The Patriot, his scenes are both memorable and noteworthy, including a moment of empathy as the horrors of war run rampant on the innocent. Thank you for the care of His Majesty's soldiers. Lieutenant, have a detachment take our wounded to our surgeons at Winsborough. Yes, sir. Fire the house and bounce. Let it be known, if you harbor the enemy, you will lose your head. Sir, what of the rebel wounded? Kill them. Graham is also here to discuss his appearance in Saving Private Ryan, where once again he left a lasting impression. Also looking forward to learning more about the television film Four Minutes that featured Christopher Plummer. Oh, and he also happens to be the award-winning novelist of the Darkly Stewart Mysteries. Like I said earlier, an impressive career. Graham Wood. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, my friend. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I appreciate you having me on. Well, it is my pleasure and honor. So uh, excited to be speaking with you again today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
I thought I would start things off by just asking where you are joining me from today. Um, joining you from Los Angeles. It's where I live uh, with my family at the moment. Um, and uh, we're in lockdown like uh, most every other person on the planet. So uh, I should say that I'm, you're, you're reaching me at home. <laughs> well, I sure hope that everybody is doing uh, well and everybody is uh, safe and sound, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Well, before we discuss your role in The Patriot and your amazing artistic journey, let's go back to the beginning. Where are you actually from? Well, I was born in Canada, but um, I spent a great deal of my life in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. My parents are from the United Kingdom, so um, I was very much at home living in the United Kingdom uh, as well as the U.S. Um, So I tend to identify as British. but, uh, but I certainly consider um, Canada and the U.S. Uh, equal homes, uh, and I've loved living in Los Angeles. Uh, but uh, I've done a great deal of work uh, around the world uh, with filmmaking. So it's, um, I'm, I guess I sort of call the world my home. And what did you like to do growing up as a child? Was there any activities in particular that you can look back on and say, that's what I really like to do a lot? Well, I was a I was a movie fanatic as a kid. Um, no surprise. I, yes, <laughs> but uh, I also got into acting as a, at a very young age. Um, I think I was four when I did my first live production, and I, I played a, an elf, you know, a Christmas production. Um, so I, I was I knew I wanted to be an actor from a very very young age, and um, it, my mother has told me that it was not something that was put into my head by anyone. It was just something that I revealed to everyone that this is what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, so I used to get involved with um, school productions as much as I could and then community productions uh, and then films and and television. Um, And uh, I've been very fortunate to have a number of great teachers and mentors uh, along the way who've guided me in the right direction. Was there anybody in your family that had a connection to the arts, so to speak, whether it be acting or writing or singing? Anybody in your family that you can think of in particular? Well, yes, my um, my father's mother was a, a singer and she used to do uh, what were called concert parties in the UK during the war. Her and her family would host concert parties for soldiers who were on leave. And uh, her aunt and uncle were members of the Carl Rosa Opera Company. And her grandfather was an Irish comedian. Um, so we, that side of the family was originally from Ireland, moved to Yorkshire in the UK uh, in the 19-teens. And he was uh, quite well known in Ireland uh, doing music hall uh, as a comedian. So she inherited his love of um, of comedy as well as singing. In fact, she used to remove her front teeth. She had lost her, her front teeth in a uh, field hockey accident in England as a schoolgirl. And so she had a bridge. So the, the, her uh, few front teeth were actually uh, artificial teeth. Um, so she could remove those and she would sing music hall and she would uh, sing uh, uh, at the concert party. She would sing comedic 
songs and remove her teeth for extra comedic effect. And much to the <laughs> horror of my of my grandfather, who was in the Royal Air Force and was on leave, and would come to the parties and he would see her do that, and he 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 didn't care for it that much. I see. A little bit too much to take in, huh? Yeah, but but uh, she was a hit. She was a hit with the the audience. I bet she sure was. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, you mentioned you enjoyed watching movies, of course. So my yes. next question is, what type of movies did you like as you were growing up? Well, you know, I, I can still recall my mother dropping me off at the cinema uh, every Saturday morning to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, when I grew up, um, movies would play, if they were a hit movie, they'd play at a cinema for a year. Uh, you would, They would be there for many months at least. And of course, there were fewer films made then. It was a, a much less democratic process and took a lot more money to make a film. Uh, technology has changed that. And, and so you only had so many films that came out a year. And, uh, and therefore you had the opportunity to watch a film over and over again at the cinema. So I was, you know, a big fan of Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But even as a, as a young person, I, I came to really appreciate drama. Um, I remember being particularly uh, taken with Kramer versus Kramer, with um, Local Hero, with Chariots of Fire. And uh, yeah, so I, I loved all those films. I can completely connect to everything that you are saying there, Graham. You know, I grew up in the 80s and I got to experience all of those things as well. In fact, I recall seeing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom three times the first two weeks that it was released. It was just uh, so much fun uh, to experience all of that. And oh, Kramer versus Kramer, uh, Chariots of Fire. Uh, um, absolutely. I can completely uh, understand your viewpoint there. I am curious, though. Eventually, you would go on to become a very talented writer. So was reading uh, yet an activity that you enjoyed doing at that time? It was. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings was was one of my favorites as, as a kid growing up. Uh, I remember doing a book report on Fellowship of the Ring. But um, then I moved on to I became very much interested in novels that showed a changing society. Uh, I became a big fan of E.M. Forster's works like Howard's End um, and Where Angels Fear to Tread and, and books like that. Um, and they really shone a light on on the um, changing attitudes in Britain and, and, and how society itself was, was changing dramatically and how the, the class system, the old class system was breaking down. And I, I've always found changing worlds um, changing attitudes to be a very powerful uh, theme in a in a book. Well, I assume that your interest in acting perhaps began by just enjoying viewing them so much. Is that true, or was there a particular uh, moment in time where maybe that just kind of started to creep in your thoughts that maybe I would like to be on the big screen one day? Do you know, it, it really wasn't like that at all. It was, um, I just knew I wanted to do it from day one. And uh, there was there was no influence there to go into acting. I, I just knew from really just beyond the age of a toddler that that's what I wanted to do. I would watch television with my parents and I'd say, I want to be doing that job. And it was it was always that way. And uh, it was never, there was never any moment that I can point to that said, you know, um, this is 
what I want to do. It was it was just a constant in my life. So I, I can't remember far enough back to know that um, there was a you know a moment uh, in my early childhood that influenced that. That is very interesting, isn't it? For many people, artistic people, that that seems to be the case. They they just felt at an early age that was something that they wanted to do. Yes, I, you know I think that there's a a lot of of people that feel um, human beings fall into a couple different categories. You know, one they're explorers; they're exploring all sorts of different ideas and and um, areas within their life to determine what they want to become and how they want their life to to progress and, and are open to a great deal of change uh, throughout their life. Whereas others, I think, um, have are sort of stuck in a place and stuck may be the wrong word, but it's certainly the way I've always felt is you'll hear actors talk about they have no choice. They have to do this. And it's because it's it, it, it almost feels as though it's thrust upon you um because there's nothing else that's going to give you the satisfaction that that does and so i think there's a you know that aspect to it for a lot of artists that you know so if you talk to a singer or a painter who's who's been a singer or painter their whole lives they will say that um you know this is what i was meant to do and and if i don't do what i've been meant to do then i'm i'm doing a disservice to whatever higher power has <laughs> instructed me to take this on like a sense of destiny, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. That's a much more eloquent way of putting it. Well, I think you described it uh, very grandly. Thank you. Uh, in fact, I was thinking while you were uh, sharing that with me that for those folks who don't follow their heart, for whatever the reason, that it can certainly haunt them down the road. And that's very unfortunate as well. Well, yes. I mean, there's um, there's the, um, um, the, the, the saying that... Uh, um, it came from a, a, one of America's rock and roll singers um, where the, the greatest um, threat to society is, un, you know, unrealized potential. And, uh, and that's the great uh, um, sin of the world is unrealized potential where nobody, that, that not everyone is, is allowed to live up to that because of their circumstances in life. So, but I don't want to get too deep into that, but it's, uh, you know, I think there's also something to be said for for the freedom of not being tied to one thing and, and finding joy in many things. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of actors who say, Oh, I would never want my kids to go into this because the, you know, it, 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 uh, is a, a burden in some ways and they are constantly struggling for cash and, and, um, and whereas others who are open to all sorts of opportunities, uh, tend to lead a bit more comfortable life. And how did the training aspect uh, start for you? Well, I mean, I, I was in drama classes all through growing up. Um, I went to university uh, and drama school, as you mentioned, Lambda. And and so Lambda was, you know, some of the best uh, time of my life and uh, was received uh, an extraordinary education from them. And I always say that if you're going to go to school <clears throat> for acting uh, or for art, make sure it's a it's a world renowned school because that in itself opens doors for you. Uh, and uh, and it certainly did. Uh, you know, graduating from Lambda, I was it gave me the opportunity to audition for a great many things. 
having gone to Lambda didn't mean I got the role, but it did mean that the door was open to an audition. So that's been, uh, that was, that was quite wonderful, particularly in my twenties and thirties. I'm sure it was. And do you recall by chance your very first acting job or your very first role? Well, as I say, my first role was as an elf in a Christmas production when I was. So we'll count that. (laughs) Yes, Um, that's what started it. (laughs) You know, I think I I did a commercial of some sort when I was sixteen, fifteen or sixteen. I did a commercial. I can't remember exactly what it was about, but I I, I did a. a, I think it was a soap commercial or something, and um, uh, and and yeah. So I mean, I don't have it anymore. I, I don't have the early work on on tape or anything. So, uh, but yeah, I believe the, the very first job was a commercial that, um, I was, um, put up for by my drama teacher at the time. I noticed that you are listed as appearing in the 1996 film in love and war, a film that, uh, I really think very highly of. Well, that's, that's being very generous to say I'm appearing in that because, um, I was, out of drama school for a year at that point and my agent got me an audition for for that movie and i uh went to meet lord attenborough and uh in england when you're young and you go to meet a director it, it's a, it's a bit of a different process you don't really have a a strict audition per se necessarily and so my audition was to sit on a couch with a couple other actors and chat with Lord Attenborough. And he asked us about ourselves and asked us, you know, what our, you know, where we went to school, what our plans were, you know, just basic things about ourselves. And then he said, well, I'm sure we can find something for you to do. And, uh, and that was the, the audition. So, um, I, um, then was cast in it and I ended up being the I don't know if you recall the scene where Sandra Bullock is operating on a well the doctor that she falls in love with is is um, operating and she's assisting him. I was the the body on the table that was being operated. Oh, I see. Okay, it's been so, a while since I've seen it, but I'll keep an eye out for that moment. Uh, so I think you get to see my forehead. I'm a bit like uh, <laughs> in that. I'm a bit like Kevin Costner in uh, The Big Chill. Um, gotcha. So, but it it was interesting because I met a very good friend on set, uh, or I made a very good friend on set who I went on to be in Saving Private Ryan with, and then um, and then kept in touch with in in uh, my the course of my career afterwards. So you know everything happens for a reason. So yeah, that was that was a lovely experience. I believe, if I remember correctly, Lord Attenborough and John Cleese um, were the two signatories on my my application for British equity. So I also got a signature out of that production. Very nice. Very nice. Was there anything in particular uh, about uh, Richard Attenborough that you noticed in particular as far as his style as director? Well, I mean, he's a legend. Uh, it's, it's, it's always, you know, my first job out of drama school was for John Cleese on a, on a, uh, what he called the equal to fish called Wanda. It was called fierce creatures. And, um, and when you meet someone like John Cleese or, or Lord Attenborough, you, it's, it's, you, you realize you're meeting a legend whom you've grown up watching. You know, obviously I, I watched uh, Jurassic Park many times. And, uh, and so to, to see this man who, who is a legend in British cinema, it, it was, it was, 
you know, a little daunting, obviously. Um, but I'm in awe of him, and uh, he's passed now. But uh, he calls everyone darling, um, and I had always heard that he has a bit of a hard time remembering names, so he will call them darling instead. So how are you doing, darling? <laughs> and I remember, I do remember um, lying on the the table um, in between um, being operated on. And he, he came up to me and he put his, his hand on my forehead and he said, how are you doing, darling? You all right? And uh, <laughs> uh, make, making sure that I was OK and that I was comfortable. And, and uh, while I was waiting for the, the lighting to change and the cameras to turn around. So he was a lovely man, a very um, has a very gentle demeanor on set and, and just a, a very kind gentleman. And, and obviously one of the most talented people to ever work in British cinema. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing those memories. I really appreciate it. And I must say, what a clever way to keep on top of names if you're having difficulty doing so. Just yes, just, just yeah. take that approach. It'll work for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and I think he, he was quite famous for that, actually. I think many people would, would say that was uh, the case with him. Um, he was uh, just a, but he was a lovely, lovely man. And the opportunity for Saving Private Ryan. Is there any particular story as far as an audition or how you landed uh, a role in the film? Well, with Saving Private Ryan, I auditioned for the casting director, uh, Priscilla John, uh, in, in the UK. And um, I remember doing a scene. I can't remember what the scene was exactly, but I had to die. I had to pretend I was dying, that you know I'd been shot or was in the water drowning. I can't really recall and then the tape was sent off to Spielberg. And, and Spielberg is famous for watching auditions on the production before the production he's going to shoot. So he'll watch auditions on tape in his trailer at lunchtime before, while he's taking a break on, on shooting whatever he's shooting at the, at the present, thinking ahead to the next production. At least that's what I was told. And so my tape was sent off, and, and then I thought nothing of it. You know, you, you, you don't get your hopes up because then you'll just be sitting by the phone getting quite worked up wondering why you're not hearing anything so i completely forgot about it and a month later i received a call from my agent and said uh you have to be on a plane thursday to ireland this is from london and uh, the the opening 20 minutes were based in county wexford in ireland and um and so we um went to uh so i was like oh, oh okay so i had two days to to get everything ready and, 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 and ship over as it were. And, uh, and then I was there for a little over a week, I think. And, uh, because, you know, I had a couple scenes, but, uh, there was also because everything's happening around you and the, the special effects were happening live there on the, on the beach. And then there was the big run up the beach as well as we stormed the beachhead. Um, yeah, I was needed there longer than my scenes, so that I was always in the background, like everyone else. And 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 uh, it was um, it was quite a spectacular feat that that whole film. It most certainly was. You know, Graham, I've studied World War II since I was a young boy when I received my first encyclopedia set. That's oh, right. how I became interested in World War II. And then, of course, back then in the 80s, a lot of movies on the weekend was uh, war movies. And, and that also propelled my interest. So seeing Saving Private Ryan, I was just so impressed with the results of the film and uh, that an incredibly intense opening segment of the film. And uh, just an, Steven Spielberg, what a master filmmaker. Well, yes. And I, you know, my my 
um, father's father was in the Royal Air Force and he was uh, part of the um, people who bombed that beach before it was stormed. And then um, my mother's father was in the uh, Indian Army and um, he was attached to the Indian Army and lived in India for five years and basically built bridges for the Allies to march across. So both my grandparents were were involved in the war, of course, and and uh, both my grandmothers were in the Royal Army Pay Corps, and that wasn't lost on me when I was was doing this um, film. Um, but it was interesting to note, you know, I, I found running up the beach, running in sand is very difficult, and I had on the actual uniforms that they would wear at that time because. Uh, there were so many uniforms created that warehouses have a stockpile of World War II uniforms. So we were in actual uniforms and we had backpacks on us. And it, it, it's worthy to note that uh, the backpacks had nothing in them. Whereas with the actual GIs who stormed the beach and, and the British soldiers and Canadian soldiers, they were they had 50 pounds on their back. So they were doing what um we, they were doing that run i was doing but with 50 pounds on the back and being shot at at the same time so it you know it gave me an astounding appreciation for for what they went through because i i just got a tiny tiny glimpse of it um and i was in awe of that tiny glimpse so um but yeah i remember there was a i was doing a scene and and um it was a scene with giovanni Rabisi and i'm screaming and and spielberg comes up to me and he he turns to his first AD and said, "What's what's the kid's name?" <laughs> and he's, this is Graham. He goes, "Hey Graham, I need more pleading, less screaming." And I was so terrified of of, of Spielberg disappointing him, not him himself. He's a lovely gentleman. I was so terrified of disappointing him. I just started pleading and, and crying. Um, in, in as we did the scene over, and he, he came up to me, he said, "Graham, that was brilliant. That was better than the opening credits to ER." And um, oh wow. Of course, ER had just come out, <laughs> so we were right. all in awe of the visceral uh, nature of, of of that television program, ER. Um, and and then um, later that day, uh, I after lunch, I came and sat in a in a, a chair on the beach, waiting for the next shot. And Spielberg came and sat next to me and just chatted and told me what uh, they had planned for the. The visual effects out on the water to show the armada, which was, of course, the largest armada ever assembled um, in the history of mankind. And so he was explaining to me what they were going to do and asked me about, you know, where I'd been to drama school and things like that. So it was a, lo a lovely experience. Well, thank you for sharing all of that with me, Graham, and, and what an excellent uh, job that you did in the film. Well, thank you. And now moving on to The Patriot. Here we are, 20 years later. Really uh, amazing to think about that, 20 years later. Yes. I watched a film every 4th of July, but I do it for many reasons, not just for one. There's so many things about the film that speak to me every year. Ultimately, I must share with you, Graham, I find the film to be about hope. And that is something that maybe uh, I am channeling into so much. But I thought we would uh, start with the audition for The Patriot. How did that all come about? Um, I auditioned for April Webster, um, and the, I believe the director and producer were present as well. And um, uh, 
I just had to do a, a scene and I don't think I did the scene that I, of, I don't think I, I auditioned for the character I actually ended up getting, uh, if I remember correctly, but, uh, it was a great scene. And, uh, um, and I got a call that afternoon, um, after the audition, they said, you have the role. We'll let you know when we're filming because it was a huge preparation. That film It's such an epic. I, I believe they planted the crops around Mel Gibson's house nine months before the, the production began and and they had to build that house of course and and so I, I do believe that uh, um, I had a, a while between the audition and actually uh, going off to shoot well you must have made a strong impression on him to, to get a call back so quickly so that yes. really says a lot very yes. well done yes. they, um, uh, it was nice to audition once and got a call from the casting director to say I had the role and um, I was visiting Los, or not visiting Los Angeles. I was, I'd been in Los Angeles for about 18 months, um, over from London. And, uh, it was in within that 18 months. And I, so I was living in LA and, and so because of the time difference with my agent in London, the casting director just decided, well, they're going to be in bed in London. We'll just give Graham a call. He won't mind. And I, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's definitely not a call. Uh, it's definitely not a call one mind's getting. Not at all. Any time of the day or night is fine for that kind of a call. Now, I'm wondering, uh, what did you do to prepare for your role? Did you have a lot of time knowing what your scene was actually going to contain? Or was it kind of like you were just given the script, you know, maybe a week or so before? No, I, I received the script early on, uh, and they continued to send me as well updates on, on the script. And uh, so I, I definitely had a sense of, of what I would be doing. And, um, so I, I knew, you know, the role I'd be playing and, 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 and the lines I had and, and what the action was, uh, you know, I, am I'm, I'm a student of history myself. I love particularly British history. Um, and I, I knew who this character was from studying British history. Um, you know, my, my role, the red coat Lieutenant was, uh, he was very typical of his day. His father would have, would have bought him a commission. And and so he would have relied on his junior officers for actual uh, how to conduct himself in war because it's not like today where an officer would have gone off to train at Sandhurst. It was you were bought a commission, you were a gentleman, and you went in to command troops. But it was really you know your sergeant who who did the commanding because you were a posh boy who had grown up uh, in affluence and so didn't really understand the nitty grittiness of war. So I understood that he would have been lost in, in America. He would have been one of the, it, it's important to realize that the war of independence for Britain was the, was just like Vietnam for, for the Americans. The British public didn't understand why we were in America fighting um, because the Americans were considered by the British public to be British. So um, they didn't understand why we were there in the first place. It didn't make sense. And as the, as the bodies, body count started rising, then the British were definitely um, leery about continuing the war. Um, so I knew that this character would be a bit lost uh, in a foreign land that he didn't understand why he was, even fighting really um he understood what what his orders were but didn't quite grasp what they were doing uh there and uh but then there was also the sense of of you know being the largest empire the world has ever seen and and 
you know, well, we should win this pretty handily, you know, just like, you know, uh, many wars that are fought by great powers. Uh, one assumes that one will win, and that's not always the case. And the British Empire, uh, especially in particular to the soldiers, you know, they, they were very professional soldiers. Well, yes, um, but they also used, um, you know, there was also uh, higher troops. Uh, it's in, important to keep in mind as well that the the war in the South was different from the war in the North. They often say in America that you had a third of the population with the crown, a third with the revolutionaries, and then a third that just didn't want to get involved and were happy with whatever outcome happened. They just didn't want to be involved. And in the South, it was different. It was more 50-50. So you would have, uh, you would have um, brothers basically fighting brothers because you would have a family go, well, we don't really know who's going to win. So let's put one brother on one side and the other on the other side. So at least we know we'll keep our property after the war. Because, of course, many, many Americans were forced to leave. Um, land-owning Americans who had sided with the crown had to either go to Canada or other colonies or, or, or to Britain. So uh, there's a comment in history, uh, in, in history books about the Napoleonic Wars, and you would have captains, uh, other officers who spoke strangely. And... Um, and and the soldiers would comment on their weird accent, their weird weird dialect, and that was because they were uh, American, and had been uh, forced to to leave America after they lost the war. But it was a it was very much the war in the South was a civil war, more than it was a, a, a war of independence. Very well said. Thank you so much. And you had me uh, recalling a scene that Tom Wilkinson had uh, as General Lord Charles Cornwallis. When he says that, you know, these people are our brethren and when this is over, you know, we will we will bond with them again and, and have healing, so to speak. And and it's very interesting to hear you describe that as well. Is it safe to say that the British Army, though, underestimated the uh, colony fighters? Uh, I would assume that in the beginning, at least, that they perhaps did. Well, I think it's a very complex situation. Uh, first of all. Uh, it's important to rem remember that many of the troops that fought on the British side were American. They might have had British officers leading them, but they were American troops so um, who were loyal to the crown. So you, it wasn't – we have this portrayal – because history is written by the victors, there's this portrayal of Americans lined up on one side and British lined up on the other. If you look at the war in the South, you'll have – Americans lined up on one side, loyal to the crown. Americans lined up on the other, loyal to the to George Washington and the and the idea of independence. So, it was a much more complex situation than than is painted. And and history is is rare. It doesn't serve victors to paint history as complex because it doesn't help one build a nation to to talk about those complexities. Um, and. Uh, I think one of the big things they underestimated was guerrilla warfare. Um, the Americans were much better at it. Uh, they employed it, and the British really just sort of queued up and and uh, and got shot. Um, and so you would have the swamp fox in in South Carolina who who knew exactly how to uh, conduct guerrilla warfare. And so that was a great advantage. 
Um, also, uh, public opinion turned began to turn in the South when the British employed uh, Native Americans um, to to raid uh, colonist villages. And what they basically said, uh, I'm, I'm sh- I, and I seriously doubt they were genuine about it. In, in, uh, I, I mean, I think they were disingenuous about it. Is they said, you know, you'll get a much better deal from us if you side with us over the uh, colonials. And I'm sure they, as as um, white settlers have always lied to the Native Americans. I'm sure they were lying then, but they convinced a certain number of tribes to to ally themselves with the British to. Um, help defeat the colonials and and that turned colonial opinion also against the british so there was a lot of factors that that ultimately led to uh american victory and one should not discount the the um help from the french as well they were very helpful absolutely the french yes absolutely Um, Uh, and it served the french very well to do that because you know at that time um for for many centuries, the French were considered the ultimate English enemy. So to 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 knock England down a peg or two was was very much on the French agenda. And you know, men of color were also offered a chance to fight for the British army, to be granted their freedom, mm-hmm. and also the um, that was happening with the um, you know with the rebels, so to speak. I mean, they were offering the same thing. I always found that ironic. Here it is, both sides offering the same thing. And it makes you just think how unfortunate that's even the situation to begin with. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I have absolute certainty that black Americans at that time were used as pawns by both sides. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a tragic situation. Slavery in America and, and around the world it was, uh, and it wouldn't surprise me that both sides used that fact, used uh, taunted people with freedom in order to get them to fight a war that really wasn't going to benefit them either way. So it's very sad, very sad situation. A very uh, a meaningful perspective there. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And you know, I think of J. Arlen Jones and his moving performance in The Patriot, and, and that is something I look forward every year when I watch the film. Well, let's talk about your scene. Eventually, it also becomes Jason Isaac's first scene. But you arrive first. Mel has taken in wounded soldiers that had been fighting off in the field nearby his farm. And he takes in not only the uh, uh, colonists, but he also takes in the British soldiers that are wounded. And you arrive and your character thanks him for doing so. Mm-hmm. And the thing I must say, Graham, is the tone of your voice. When, when your character first arrives, there is, a, you know, it's not threatening. It sounds very sincere. Like you described your character, of a very professional, well-trained soldier. But boy, when Jason Isaacs appears, everything changes and quickly. Well, yes, and he, um, yeah, I mean, it's, he's a, an intimidating figure, that character. Um He's he's the bad guy of the film, of course, uh, and um, and uh, when he when he spoke, you followed orders. And what was it like working with Jason? Well, I mean, he's uh, one of the most talented British actors that we have at the moment, and so um, I was a bit in awe of him. Um, and of course, he went on to play um, 
that they're just the most you know one of the the greatest villains of all time in the harry potter series obviously you know he's one of the great actors and i think one of the great villain actors of of british cinema and uh, lucius malfoy i think is one of the, the great creations of uh, you know of um of villainry and uh uh, he's he's amazing uh he's amazing to work with he gives off an energy that that uh very easily cowed me as a character um made me um very subservient and 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 willing to do whatever he commanded uh and so i was uh as you of course know in the scene i then go on to order the shooting of of uh, many innocent people well everyone's caught up in war and it's arguable that that uh or, you know that all soldiers um, know what they're getting into, but um, but that brings up a whole nother discussion about what it meant to be a soldier at that time. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the Americans obviously um, had uh, soldiers sign up, but Britain was still operating under a press gang sy um, system where they would you'd be uh, a sergeant would come along and get you drunk at a pub and then put a, a coin in your hand, and then that was automatically um assumed that you'd agreed to serve in his majesty's forces so um these soldiers uh yeah who had been shipped over i think probably felt very much like uh, the soldiers who were shipped off to vietnam they were wish they could just go home and graham after the shooting occurs you know on on the porch for the most part but also out in the uh front yard area your character is walking down the steps and headed back to his horse, and suddenly the score of the film, just an absolutely magnificent score all the way around, adds so much to the film. It is just soaring with just uh, very heartfelt music. And you see the children looking at your character uh, in, in, in awe of what had just occurred, and your character slows down, stops, and looks over. And there's a moment there and that's the moment that has just always stayed with me. If I think of The Patriot, it's one of the first thoughts that comes into my mind is that moment. I, I am curious, were you told to provide such a moment or was it one of those things that happens somehow, you know, on your own doing, so to speak? Um, I, if, if, as far as I remember, it was on my own doing. Um, I, They had they just wanted to do a shot of me crossing and looking over at the the child um but you know for me as a character I, I i recall thinking as an actor that this young man that i'm playing has his whole innocence has been lost now he he would have been a, a young as i said a young man whose dad would have bought him a commission very inexperienced in the ways of 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 warfare and and uh, and he would have um, been shipped overseas and, and commanding men who are much more knowledgeable knowledgeable than him. And and here he's just been ordered to commit this great atrocity. And he knows he's going to have to live with this now for the rest of his life. Um, and he's devastated, absolutely devastated. And um, and he's just seen a child um, shot at. So. Um, he's it was a very emotional moment I, I remember feeling very emotional about it um great deal of shame that the character is feeling at that moment and and but overall more than anything helplessness 
had had to follow orders. No, I, literally, no choice. Yeah, and you know, maybe a braver man would have refused, and then he would have. Um, then Jason Isaacs would have ordered one of his own men to shoot me. Exactly. Um, yes. But uh, he was. I do not think in any way that my character was up to that kind of bravery. He just wanted to, to, you know, like every soldier in any war, he just wants to get home. And um, but this that moment in his life means that if he does get home, he's going to be haunted for the rest of his life. And uh, I think that 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 moment in the film does communicate that pretty well. I, I know many people have reached out to me about that moment and how much it affected them. And 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 I think it's a moment in the film that shows the complexity of war as well, that that um, here's the guy who's on the wrong side of history, but people see him as being a, a quite a, a good person at heart because of the um, regret he feels. Well, my hat off to you. A, a, extremely well done to leave such a memorable and lasting moment such as that. So I must say uh, what an outstanding job you did at that particular moment. I did want to bring up to get your thoughts. One of the edge to the Patriot is the way that the the script says, "Hey, we're not saying all British soldiers are like this," and your character is an example, uh, you know. But Jason Isaac's character is most definitely out of control, and uh, this becomes more and more clear as the film goes along. I'm I'm glad that it showed that they're not trying to say all British soldiers behaved in such a manner or would, but that Jason Isaacs was basically completely out of control. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in many ways, I find his performance in The Patriot as one of the more ruthless and cold-hearted performances in cinema history. I mean, if there's a top 10 list, I feel that character makes the list. Yeah, he's uh, it's he he plays a a a villain um, to to the highest standard. I mean, as we as I just mentioned, Lucius Malfoy, I think, is just a an incredibly uh, powerful villain, and um, and always has an effect on me when he comes on screen. Um, and it's the same with his character in in The Patriot. Uh, he's just damn good at being the villain, and yes. you love to hate him love to hate him and and the thing is with jason isaacs is um even though you're rooting for the uh the hero in the film you can't wait to see him on screen as the villain and i think that's that's one of the capabilities he has as an actor to make you want to see him on screen even though he's the villain well said and as a viewer you can't wait for the the conclusion when they're going to have their big face off you, you know what's coming the film really cooks yeah. that up so well well, what was it like later on when your character is in the forest with a handful of British troops? And, of course, Heath Ledger is, is taken prisoner and Mel and his two young sons are there to rescue him. Uh, any uh, memories of, of filming that scene? Yes, I, um, I remember the blood wasn't showing coming out of my mouth. So I remember the makeup artist who was who was shadowing me she had to um pour so much fake blood into my mouth which of course as you probably know is is basically sugar and it's the sweetest sugar you've ever had to the point of gagging and and so i had oh, a my. mouthful of this this awful 
red sugary substance and and finally you know we we got it right where it was reading on camera um but uh yeah that was not fun to have that in my mouth but uh it's memorable that's for sure and that was that that was quite a scene wasn't it i mean that's yes, when and you, I mean, uh, really see the other side of Mel's character just come to to light. Well, yes, and I mean, he I think he he did what was you know obviously he did what he did because of um, all the incidents that happened back at his house, yes. and he was desperately upset and shattered by it, and so he's taking revenge. But there was also a logic to it because he said, you know, you need to take out the captain, and if you take out the captain, then the the people that follow him will panic and and so there's a definite logic to to him targeting me first graham i've asked you about working with jason isaacs what about your memories of working with mel oh lovely man i mean he was always very kind to me and uh um he was very kind to everyone on set and uh um he uh, yeah he was uh he i do remember that he mostly kept to himself um in the scenes i was with him on because he was uh you know in the scenes he was doing they were very intense and he was having to you know it's when all the rage is coming up in him and he seeks revenge and so he was i remember seeing him a couple times basically just channeling that standing uh, off to the side you know keeping in that sort of mode um and uh, yeah so um always had a lovely experience with everyone on that set it was everyone was very kind to everyone else and i I do also recall you know one of the things that happens in hollywood is you have different tables for different um tiers and so you have uh, um the extras will have one table for their lunch etc and then or or, and craft services and then um the principal actors will have uh, a different area uh and with the patriot that was all done away with it was just they had the table there uh, and, um, and everybody was ate together and, and, uh, so it was very, it was lovely in that way. And, uh, um, I remember talking to a number of the, the soldiers, the British soldiers and the American soldiers, and they were reenactors from around America who had come during their holiday time from their normal jobs to come perform these roles. And so it was very impressive to talk to them. And I received a book from one of them. Oh, very nice. That, uh, about, uh, about the war in the South. And, uh, it was um, it was quite an interesting read, and that's when I learned reading the book that he gave me uh, that uh, it was very much a civil war in the southern states. Well, that that is a very nice gift to receive. Absolutely. Uh, now, I would like to ask you about one more cast member, if you don't mind, and and that would be Heath Ledger. And you know what? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I watch the film every year, and I just think of all the potential that young man had. Uh, This is actually my favorite performance and character that he portrayed. I just think it really puts on display what was in store for him. But any memories of conversations with him or anything in particular by chance? Um, You know, it was it was lovely to do the scene with him. Uh, It was more a case of you would hear you would get into conversations with people outside of the scene. And it was always commented on about his his general magnetism on set he has that star quality oh sorry he had that star quality and um it it just always shone out uh you know he he was definitely a leading man and as well as being a very fine actor he had that extra quality 
that most actors, frankly, don't have. I don't have it. Um, and that's uh, being the leading man, someone who can carry an entire picture. Uh, I love playing the roles I get to play, and, and, and I, I certainly believe that I, I bring a, a great talent to those little roles. But, uh, but Heath Ledger was one of those greats that uh, has that leading man quality as well as being a great actor. And, and that's just not very common. And they always say there's only a handful of actors who can truly carry a picture and make hundreds of millions of dollars. And, mm. and uh, Heath Ledger was one of, those, he, one of those men. He sure was. Extremely well said. Thank you. Well, I would definitely like to ask you about working with director Roland Emmerich. What was that experience uh, for you like? Very soft-spoken man. Uh, very, um, uh, just very easy to get along with. Um, very plain speaking in, in what he wanted. So he could communicate it very quickly and softly. And you did it. Um, he's also known for capturing everything from every possible angle. And I think that's why, part of the reason why his films have such an epic feel to them is you know that the number of ways we shot me going down those stairs um in, at, at the house was was a real eye-opener for me and, and it made me understand what a, a blockbuster director like himself has to do to create an epic feel so yeah so great respect for him well when the film was released do you recall your first reactions to seeing your scene on the big screen, and your overall thoughts of the film itself? Well, yes, I, I was surprised um, that I had, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, I was, I was very surprised that there was such a concentration on my character in those scenes. You know, when you're, when you're doing something, you, you put all your heart into it, but you don't know what's going to survive when it actually gets up onto the big screen. And so I was surprised that... Uh, and, and, and particularly as I started to hear from people and how the character resonated with them. And I was like, oh, uh, OK. <laughs> and uh, um, it, it, it was not expected at all. And of course, um, you know, I loved the, the film because it was a, a big historical epic. I love historical epics. I remember being in drama school and I was asked by I was asked at a final exam um, who was or was it a, not an exam. It was a final evaluation by a director who had directed me. Uh, on stage at drama school and he says what what do you want for your career and i said i want to play in historical epics uh historical rom-coms i want to always be wearing a costume from that those eras and uh, and and you know um doing those sorts of pictures that's what i that's what i love the most and so right off the bat i got to do that in saving private ryan so it was uh so you know for at least my 20s i got to uh experience that well, Graham, I would like to ask you about four minutes and then a bit about your writing, if you don't mind. But I would like to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing such in-depth stories and memories. Um, I, I just can't thank you enough for such a wonderful opportunity. Well, <clears throat> thank you. And um, it's been a pleasure to, to speak to you and relive it, really. It's, it's not an opportunity I get very often, to be frank. You know, actors have a, a certain run unless they are the, you know, the really big ones. And uh, I had my run in my mid-20s to late 30s. And, and uh, so I, I still get to act on occasion. Got to shoot a film in Montreal last year. And 
but it's not something I get to do on a regular basis anymore. So it's an absolute pleasure to be asked to talk about it. Well, thank you very much, Graham. And I couldn't have asked for a better gentleman from the cast to be my first guest for the anniversary uh, special. So thank you once again. And, and four minutes. I have not seen this film, but I'm actually looking forward to doing so. What can you share about uh, that experience for you as an actor? Oh, it's a, it's a great film. It's, um, it's directed by Charles Beeson, whom many will know as, as the director of the hit television series Supernatural uh and 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 the series timeless uh it's um it, it it's an incredible film about one of the greatest sporting achievements of all time and that's the breaking of the 4 minute mile uh it was often thought by doctors that the human being could not run anything under a 4 minute mile that their heart would explode Mm. Um, and, and, and so this is about the breaking of that in, in the early 1950s and, and, uh, in particular about Roger Bannister, who is the man who broke the four minute mile in, in Oxford. And I played one of his paces called Chris Chataway, uh, and the other was Chris Brasher. Uh, Chris Chataway went on to be knighted and served in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. Um, so all, all three of them had very distinguished careers after breaking that uh, barrier. But uh, a pacer's job was to get the, the chief um, runner on their team across the line as quickly as possible. So what you had in that race was Chris Brasher ran his heart out for uh, until he collapsed. And you see him in the film actually collapse. And then I take over to run ahead of Roger Bannister to set his pace, to get him to the right speed um, to, to break that four minutes. And then around the last bend, he purses me because I've run out of steam and he breaks that four minute barrier. So it's a real gentleman, gentlemanly um, pursuit because you have these two men who their chief objective is, is not even necessarily to finish the race, <laughs> but to get their their um their friend across the line and to to break this psychological as well uh, barrier as well as break the record and it's a moving moving film about that whole endeavor and and christopher Plummer played our coach uh, i was uh, shot in canada for england so um many you know the the actors were playing english actors uh, english characters but we we filmed it in canada and uh and it, it worked very well. It was a, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful picture. You would swear it was shot in Oxford, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Wow! Especially I can't if you're wait a to see fan. it. Yeah, especially if you're a sports fan, it really has some chariots of fire moments. Oh, nice! I was actually thinking that. I bet there's a like a chariots of fire element to the production. Oh, absolutely! And uh, and I I became very good friends with. Uh, well, well, both of the, the gentlemen I worked with on that, um, and uh, Jamie McLaughlin, who played Roger Bannister, uh, Drew Carnworth, who played Chris Brasher, uh, we became very good first friends, and uh, um, Jamie McLaughlin became my business partner uh, in our production company, which uh, is, is my principal pursuit now. Well, Graham, I can't wait to ask you about your writing. And I must say to you that I am looking forward to reading your book soon. So what Thank can you. you share about your writing? What type of books do you like to write? 
Well, um, I have two novels and working on a third. They're all part of a series called The Darkly Stewart Mysteries. And they are about, uh, to be frank, they're about werewolfism, but they're, they're about a, a lady cop, um, female uh, uh, vice detective who is investigating a world in which werewolfism is a sexually transmitted disease. So in this world, it's not that you get bitten by a werewolf. It's that um, you have an intimate encounter with, with one. Uh, and it's, uh, and this disease is spreading across the world. And there's a very, it's a very complex world. Um, the mythology is, is quite deep. And now we're working with, uh, myself, uh, Jamie, uh, our other partner, Peter Berglund, uh, at, at my company, McLaughlin Wood. We're working with ADME studios and, uh, a 71 entertainment to, to bring it to the feature uh, to bring it to the big screen. And uh, we have Simon West attached as our director. And how can folks out there order these books? Well, you can find the Darkly Stewart Mysteries on Amazon. Um, I believe they're also available online at uh, Barnes & Noble. But uh, but the best way is just to go to Amazon or Kindle. Uh, you can get the ebook on Kindle uh, Unlimited. Uh, and uh, um, But uh, yeah, you can order the paperback on Amazon. The novels, the first two are called The Woman Who Tasted Death. Uh, that's the first novel. And the second novel is Light and Darkly. And they are, um, uh, they, but they're all under the banner of the Darkly Stewart Mysteries is what I wanted to say. Uh, as a writer, I've always been attracted to female characters, uh, female lead characters, mainly because I find that, that female characters have a much more interesting arc. Uh, there's a there's um, just more complexity I find to to female roles, mm -hmm. and uh, I, so I, I love exploring uh, tales that have female leads. Well, I appreciate once again you sharing so much with me today and the listeners. I thought I would conclude uh, actually with a question about the Patriot, and that would be when it comes to the legacy of the film now that it's twenty years later. What stands out in your mind when, in regards to the legacy of The Patriot? I think the thing that stands out the most is every time I turn on the television, I see it. <laughs> so it, it seems to be on every week. This um, is true. It, and that's, that's, that's something that uh, is, always a, is, is always a pleasant uh, surprise. It's the same with Saving Private Ryan. They always seem to be on at some point. I'll... I, you know, there's been more than one occasion, Stephen, where I have actually turned on the television and the Patriot is playing and I'll, I'll just turn to it to see where they are in the film. And sure enough, it's my scene or it's just getting ready to be my scene. And I'm just like, it, it's, it's funny it's, how it's that a, works, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? It is funny. And, uh, um, so it's, um, it's a lovely, uh, it's always a, a lovely thing to see that something you have done has lasted, um, I always say to, to friends, I said, I got to be in Saving Private Ryan and The Patriot in four minutes. Um, if only I'd gotten to be in Lord of the Rings, I'd be all set. I'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be done for one career. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be full so, circle uh, at that moment. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely thing to see it uh, continuing to affect so many audiences. I, I continuously have people come up to me and say, it's one of my favorite films or it is my favorite film. And, um, so, and it's just nice that, uh, my characters seem to resonate with people. I, you know, to be, you know, I have a, a small role. I'm only in a couple scenes, but it's, uh, it seems to have struck a chord with people. It most certainly has. And it, 
and no doubt it has with me as well. Graham Wood, thank you uh, once again. Uh, It has been so enjoyable. I've learned so much, and it's been a true honor speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. Your wife's expecting a child soon, isn't she? She gave birth to a son three weeks ago. What'd you name him? We named him Gabriel. Thank you, Harry. A Hollywood and Beyond special presentation. Send host Steve Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Hollywood and Beyond podcast created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.